Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years, in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out until our 29th year of marriage that we were a neurodiverse couple. And I've been divorced five years, and together we have the most amazing adult daughter who's thriving and doing fantastic. And today I'm really excited to be joined by my guest, who I have to give a shout out to a member of the support group that I run, um, who had referred me to her, but Sarah Bergenfield is here today as my guest on the podcast. Sarah, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here. Hi, thanks, Mona. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So I usually like to start out the podcast by having my guests share a little bit about what brought them to do the work they're doing. And I'd love if you would like to share anything about your personal journey or your professional journey so that our listeners have a little bit of an idea about why you're doing the work you're doing now. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So my journey is sort of um, a convergence of lots of different paths that I have taken that have led me here but it really sort of culminated when my daughter um, was diagnosed with autism in 2018 and I had tried to get a diagnosis of some kind from um, really from when she was two years old. I have three children, she's my middle child and I just knew it was it was very evident very early on that she had some differences in her behaviors and her emotional regulation and I remember taking her to the doctor when she was a two-year-old and and sort of sitting and sobbing in the doctor's office because I was so overwhelmed because Mm. I just didn't know how to parent this child right I obviously loved her an enormous amount but I didn't know how the the details of how to parent her in a way that that could help her feel better mm-hmm. and I was dismissed um, in a nice way but but in a dismissive way by the doctor who said you know oh it's terrible twos she'll grow out of it everything's mm-hmm. fine and that basically continued throughout her life I tried again when she went to kindergarten she had all kinds of learning difficulties um, terrible social anxiety around school And when I say social anxiety, I don't mean in terms of being able to socialize with friends and peers. I mean, just being in the social space of a classroom with multiple objects and people and noises and sounds and everything Mm -hmm. that that entails. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, we were dismissed. She had trouble reading and writing. And in fact, for the first two years of school, she wrote backwards everything mm. backwards the the and you would hold a mirror up to the page and the word would read perfectly and the sentence would read perfectly wow and so I had to work really hard with her to get her to, to sort of unlearn what was very natural for her um so that sort of continued throughout her life and when she was about 15 or 16 she said to me mom I think I'm autistic wow and I didn't know anything about autism like you know the majority of the rest of the world and there really wasn't it wasn't being talked about especially with with girls Mm -hmm. Um, and so I said to you know honey I just I just don't think so I just don't see it and you know we sort of just continued she was evaluated by a psychologist at school um, right after that so you know I suggested that we look into whatever it was she thought she might have 
Sure. So she saw the clinical psychologist at school and, and, you know, he called me and sort of gave me the report and said, you know, there's definitely something. There's clearly something. There's a processing issue of some kind. I don't know what it is. And I think that once she leaves high school and goes to college, she'll be fine. Mm, wow. Yeah. So it was it was a really, really tough journey for her. Um, and by when she was 18, she said to me, Mom, I'm really, I really think I'm autistic. And so I took her much more seriously. And I found a clinical psychologist that she went to and she was evaluated. And it was pretty obvious that, yes, she had autism. Wow. And well, as part of her diagnostic process, the psychologist said to me, Do you think you could be autistic? And I just, again, didn't really, at that point, I still didn't understand what it was and how it might impact a person. So I said, no, I didn't think there was any way I could be. Mm -hmm. um, and so she gave me some materials and, and some, you know, different things to read. And some of what I was reading was really landing. And then when I was in graduate school at the time doing my master's in social work, which I have since stopped doing because I just can't do school that well. Mm -hmm. um, and we were doing, it was one of the classes we were doing. And unfortunately it was a, you know, it was under the, the label of disabilities. Yeah. And they had us read um, a book and some chapters on autism and, and take the AQ test, which is mm -hmm. a self-diagnosis test from Simon Baron Cohen, who's an autism researcher in, in uh, London at Cambridge University. Right. And I took the AQ test and the AQ test scores you out of 50 and anything over 30 is considered, you know, that you're that you have significant autistic traits. Sure. And I scored 34. Wow. And I remember looking at it and thinking, well, it's broken. It doesn't work. There's something mm -hmm. wrong with it. It can't be right. Um, and so I sort of dismissed it and then I took it again and I scored the same thing. And so then I sent it to um, the rest of my family and to my some friends of mine. And I said, OK, well, I think this doesn't work. So why don't you try it? And they tried it and everybody scored. My, my husband scored, I think, six. Okay. And so there was a really there was a, a really significant disparity mm -hmm. between my score and everybody else's score. And then my daughter, who'd just been diagnosed, scored 36. Wow. So, you know, it was sort of at that point, um, it's really started to settle and land that, okay, this is something that I should start to consider. And so I went back to the same psychologist and worked with her and, and um, she helped me a lot. And I did a lot of therapy around it to get through, you know, my feelings of shame and inadequacy and having missed it in my child. And, and then um, that was sort of the beginning of my journey into learning about it. That took me into reconsidering and evaluating my family history, right? So I have a brother who has autism. I have a nephew who has autism. Mm -hmm. And I now believe um, that my mother, who died when she was 60, I believe she was an undiagnosed autistic. Wow. And I recently learned within the last two years that my mother was actually institutionalized when she was 15 for being um, disruptive and uncontrollable and in England at that time in the 1960s there was a system called approved schools and approved schools went hand in hand with the criminal system the court system but they were for minors or children who weren't quite 
you know, bad enough to go through the criminal system, but still needed to be controlled. Right. That's, that's the way they labeled it. And so she was um, sent to an approved school on the border with Wales between England and Wales called St. Euphrasia's. And a few years ago, I found some photographs um, of her at that time. And I didn't know the name of the school, but on the back of the photograph, she'd written the year and the place where the photograph would taken. And she had told us at various times in our lives that she had been sent away, but she really mm-hmm. didn't go into any detail about it. And so I sort of did my detective work mm-hmm. um, using Google Maps and um, Somerset House records from London and, and like the history of the schools in that area and discovered that the place that she went to and actually found it on Google Maps and, and could see where she was there. And it was actually closed down in the 1970s because they were really cruel places. Oh, wow. And so, she yeah. was 15, she was, she was 15 years old. And do you and know how long she was there? I think she was there for a couple of years. Oh. and it really it just sort of wrote the story of her life Mm. it really did what the experiences that she had there she was considered a sort of an outcast by her her mother who you know was ashamed of the fact that this had happened and she never finished school she never finished she never went to university and it shaped her entire life oh my gosh the trauma I can't even imagine I can't even imagine yeah, it was it was pretty, pretty evident, the trauma. Um, yeah. And, you know, of course, it impacted her, her parenting of us. And so that combined with her autistic traits and characteristics made her, you know, somewhat of a, a really lovely, charming, wonderful person in lots of ways. And then also this other side of, you know, extreme complication and emotional patterns and behaviors that were that were basically PTSD. Mm-hmm. And now you look at her parenting and just being in the family through a whole different lens, I would imagine. Exactly. Completely different lens. And I have so much more compassion for her now. Sure. Um, and for the, the way that she parented all of us. Um, sure. I have a lot more love and compassion for her. But, you know, it really has informed so much of my work. And I would say that at the heart of my work is the experience of my mum mm-hmm. and myself and my daughter and all of the other women like me and like us who were undiagnosed, perhaps remain undiagnosed and have struggled in various ways um, yeah. because of this, you know, this neurological condition that's only really just beginning to be talked about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So wow. from there, I, um, I found IFS, I was actually working with an IFS therapist um, and I loved it so much that I I um, went and I got trained by the Institute and I'm now certified level three practitioner. And I use the model to support clients with their journey through autism right, and the diagnosis. So the pre and the post, parts of them that may have been created by their experiences of living in a world as an undiagnosed person. Mm-hmm. and all of the struggles that that come from that and then I specialize in um, adapting the IFS model because the IFS model like almost every psychotherapeutic model was written by a neurotypical person right <laughs> and is not really designed for always for brains like like mine or like other people like me so mm-hmm. I help train people and then I work with clients specifically around 
how to use the model with an autistic mind. I love that. I think IFS personally is like maybe maybe the best um, model or method to use, I think, for neurological differences. I have a co-host, Greg Fuqua. Um, he's been my guest co-host for season five, who that's the method and modality that he uses, and it helped him so much in his self-identification. And I just, I, I love IFS. I just think mm. it's amazing. And it, I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm so glad that you shared that that is the method that you use and that you're teaching other people how to use it through a neurodivergent lens. Because, right. yeah, there's so many parts that folks have used to cope and they aren't even aware of how they are maybe hurting them as they move forward in life and in relationship. And no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And we know that, you know, autistics mask. Yeah. Right. And masking behaviors. If we use IFS language, masking behaviors are manager behaviors, right? They're, right. They're beha- proactive responses to situations to keep us engaged in the world and keep us safe and keep us actively involved in things. Right. At the expense of ourselves, right? At the Absolutely. expense of our mental health, our physical health, our Absolutely. spiritual health, sometimes our financial health, I know. And Sarah, I, I can't thank you enough for kind of taking the listeners through a little bit of your journey. And I can't imagine how your daughter must have felt knowing that she thought she was autistic and being denied, you know, the support mm-hmm. that she needed and the diagnosis she was looking for. And as a parent of a child who you were trying to not only understand and parent effectively, but you wanted her to get what she needed to thrive and succeed in mm-hmm. life. And yeah. I just think this is, you know, we are in the beginning of a paradigm shift. I think so many of the tools, the strategies, and um, the assessments, the measures that are used were uh, based on, you know, white young boys. And we can't, we can't use those to diagnose or assess women, people of color, the LGBT community. I mean, there's so many folks that are being told they're not what they believe they are. Mm -hmm. And that just adds to the trauma. And so, Thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anything else that you want to share about your personal or professional journey before we go on? Mm, no, I mean, just, you know, I, I, I love the recognition, you know, that, that you just offered to my daughter. And I think about that all the time. Um, thankfully, she was young, 18, when she received her diagnosis. And, and so her life moving from that point forward can be through a different lens. But, but yeah, she certainly had had a lot of suffering and yeah up to that point so it's nice yeah. to just hold that for a moment for her yeah I hear you I hear you I, I hear this story so often from the women that I have talked to and interviewed on the podcast and you know sometimes it brings me to tears sometimes it just makes me so angry I, I just want to continue advocating because you know I've had women on the podcast who've been pregnant who are autistic and have been ignored by the healthcare system Mm -hmm. and their Mm -hmm. needs have been negated. And, you know, when you're in a health crisis or you're pregnant and you need support, you have to have somebody who understands you, who values you, who believes you 
and wants to give you what you need to be successful moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the more we can advocate, Sarah, and the more we can share, you know, stories of our own and, and other people's, I think the more the world has to take notice and has to provide more support. They just have to. I agree with that. I, I so agree with that. And I think that with this, we really need to stop being, you know, a group of people that are researched by people who don't have what we have. Yes. Right. There needs to be much more space for, you know, phenomenological experiences, right? The, the, the objective or the sub subjective experience of what it's like to be us. Yes. And move into more qualitative data as opposed to quantitative data. Yes. Right. Yes, I, I, I agree. And my PhD is in social work, and it was all qualitative. So I totally understand mm -hmm. the terms mm -hmm. in the process. <laughs> yeah. So, so I love that you are, again, educating others about how IFS can be used in situations where there's different neurology, and people don't understand that you're probably able to recognize a lot of things that maybe have caused challenges in people's lives, but they couldn't understand kind of the root cause of it. And I know you said that also you use polyvagal theory mm -hmm, I do. in yeah. your work. And we've talked very little about polyvagal theory. And I know, you know, if you go on YouTube, you go on, you know, Instagram, any, any social media platform, there's a lot of folks talking about nervous system dysregulation or polyvagal theory. But I'm wondering if you could give the listeners a little bit of information about polyvagal mm -hmm. theory and kind of how you, I think you used the term when we were preparing for the uh, podcast, ladder, IFS and polyvagal theory. Right, right. Yeah. So polyvagal theory was um, a theory that was designed by Stephen Porges, mm -hmm. um, I think back in the 90s, it may even have been in the 80s. And he discovered that the vagus nerve, which comes from the base of the brain, that there are two branches of it, one that travels um, basically from the mid thoracic up, right, so through the heart, um, and through into the lungs and then a second branch that goes down into to the intestines and all the lower organs of the body and that this nerve um, basically has like a brain of its own mm -hmm. and that brain is constantly scanning the environment it's, he refers to it as neuroception so it's scanning the environment for cues of safety or cues of danger mm -hmm. right this is how he describes it that information travels through the body back up into the brain where it's processed and the nervous system responds accordingly, right? So the, yeah. the three states that he talks about are ventral vagal, which is what we call, if you picture a ladder standing mm -hmm. vertically, ventral vagal would be at the top of the ladder. Okay. Ventral vagal energy is where we feel calm and connected, right? So it's a place of safety that allows us to connect with other people. In the middle of the ladder, we have the sympathetic neuro nervous system, right, which is fight or flight, mm. right? So that's that, okay, get ready, danger's coming, prepare, be on alert, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the bottom of the ladder is what he refers to as dorsal vagal. And dorsal vagal energy is that energy of collapse, mm -hmm. freeze, or quiet. Now, each of those states, the ventral vagal or the dorsal vagal, 
they can be subdivided into a regulated state or a dysregulated state, mm -hmm. meaning that your nervous system is having a different kind of response. So, for example, a regulated dorsal vagal state would be, um, you know, where you're feeling very quiet. You might want to connect with your partner in very quiet ways. Maybe you just want to sit together. You know, you don't really need much activity. But there's a sense of calm in the interaction, mm -hmm. right? A mm -hmm. dysregulated dorsal vagal state would be freeze. Mm. Where, wow. where it's very much protection. Okay. Right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's really the way to distinguish. The regulated states allow for connection to happen. The dysregulated states create patterns of protection or behaviors mm -hmm. of protection. So the reason that this is so important with um, autistic clients, regardless of the psychotherapeutic modality that you're using, regardless of whether, you know, it's a, an autistic spouse, partner, child, friend, client, whatever it is, the reason that this can be so helpful is because autism is a perceptual disorder. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it affects the level of input coming into the brain at all times right so yeah. the other thing I do in my very little spare time is I'm actually finishing <laughs> graduate school and I am um, doing my master's in consciousness studies and so I've been doing all this really incredible research into like the neurotypical versions of consciousness and how we can apply an autistic lens to that to see what autistic consciousness looks like right so I love that so this perceptual disorder Right. It basically means that autistic people gather what we call low level information. So that doesn't mean low level as in not intense. It's actually the opposite. So low level data is think of walking into a room. Right. Let's say mm -hmm. you walk into a restaurant, for example. If you're a neurotypical person, you're picking up what we call the higher level data of that space. Right. So, you, you know, you're you're acknowledging, you're recognizing that it's a restaurant. Right. right. You can see the people are eating and and, it, and you know that you're in a restaurant and, you know, you get kind of like the noise and the chaos of a restaurant scenario. But your brain is using what we call top down processing, which mm -hmm. is like existing knowledge and beliefs and experiences. And it's generating expectations about what's likely to happen in that restaurant situation. Right. An autistic person, we take in all what we call the low level data, which is the small stuff. So mm. every sound, every smell, every taste, the feel of things, the individual objects. So the noises of cutlery on plates, yeah, right? The scraping, the movement of people, the lines that make up the objects in the room, the textures of the objects. And our brains process that information from a bottom up approach which means we have to gather all of that data. We have to bring it in. We have to start to process it and integrate it to form a coherent and understandable perception of where we are and what we're looking at. That is so powerful, Sarah, and probably will be life-changing for the people that are hearing this. I have never, and I'm almost, I think, at 150 episodes, I have never had anybody explain that so clearly. 
And I've heard this over and over from autistic partners who attend the neurodiverse couple support groups that I facilitate. And when they explain it in words that make sense to them, the light bulb goes off Mm -hmm. in the partner's heads. And, And in some cases it's brought the partners to tears because, and, and I was guilty of this, you know, looking at my ex-husband and seeing what was almost a, um, a pause or a stopping of like almost functioning. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was because he didn't want to participate right, right. or he was too tired to engage. But now I understand it was this, um, bottom level mm-hmm. the bottom processing. up processing right. yeah bottom, bottom up processing which right. I didn't understand until like the last year right yeah right and that's exactly it and the sheer you know the sheer amount of data that's coming in at any one time right that's coming yeah. in through the sensory receptors is is can be really like overwhelming and dysregulating So what does, I love when we can give tools or strategies or insights. So what, what can a non-autistic, neurotypical, holistic, I use those words, you know, Mm -hmm. interchangeably partner do to support their autistic partner, knowing that we have different ways of processing our surroundings Mm -hmm. And what can the couple do together? Right. And what can the autistic partner do when they feel maybe overwhelmed in these situations? Right. And, and right. I've asked three questions. So mm-hmm. But can, they're, they're great questions. Wherever, and yeah, I hope I'll answer sense. all three. And if I don't okay. ma- uh, hit one of them, please remind me. Sure. So basically, the, the first thing to, that I, that's important to consider is this low-level processing doesn't just apply information it Mm -hmm. applies to everything it Mm -hmm. applies to every experience that we have every conversation that we have yeah right so if you're an autistic and you're in conversation with a you know someone who doesn't have autism you're going to be focusing on details that that person deems irrelevant or doesn't even notice right and Mm -hmm. I've certainly had this experience with my husband where he'll be trying to tell me how he feels about something and he'll say you know, well, do you remember yesterday when we were in the kitchen and, you know, you said this, it made me feel like this, right? So that's that's how he will express himself. What I'm focused on is, okay, well, it wasn't yesterday and we weren't in the kitchen. (laughs) It was actually Thursday and we were in the car. Right. And that's when it happened. Right, right, right. Where my focus goes, right? So to me, to my brain, that makes total sense that that's what I'm focusing on. Because that's the right. operating system. Right. To my husband, See? what he's hearing is to me, you don't right. care about how I feel. Right. So right. being mindful of, of this, you know, this low level detail that we're taking in and trying to integrate and process. Right. It makes us slow at processing. Right. Just because the sheer volume of information that, that we're that we're taking in at any one time. Yeah. So both parties in the couple can be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. I think and, it's critical, Sarah. I think yeah. it's absolutely critical because when, when you finish sharing, I'm going to share an, a few incidents, incidences where 
it turned into complete conflict in my marriage mm-hmm. right. <laughs> because we were right. missing each other. So go ahead. Exactly. Go ahead. This is so exactly. helpful. Yeah. So that's one piece. Um, mm-hmm. The second piece is to just, you know, open the, the door for communication around these things. Mm-hmm. You know, so find out what, what might be hot spots within the relationship, right? Yeah. Is it the way you communicate? Um, I know that I've had to work with my husband to not talk so much. Mm. If he has a point to make to me, to use fewer words. Yeah. Because I just cannot hold them all. I, I, he, he loses me after a while. Yeah. I hear you. You know, which ends up being very frustrating for me mm-hmm. and leaves him feeling, you know, that I don't listen to him and that I don't care. And neither of those things are, you know, are true, but I see why he how he gets there. Sure. So having a conversation around those things and just really learning as much as you can about how the individual's autism impacts them. What what does their autism feel like in their body? Mm-hmm. what's their autistic experience because it's different for each of us sure yeah. so those are practical things and then I know that we started down this road because you asked asked me about polyvagal theory mm-hmm. so I use polyvagal theory to help clients get in touch with their nervous system right so so here's what we know about bottom-up processing which is the operating system of um, an autistic person so that wonderful book that Bessel van der Kolk wrote decades mm-hmm. ago, The Body Keeps the Score, Yep, right, is all about trauma, PTSD, and working with trauma survivors mm-hmm. and how you need to work with a client or a person who's in what he calls a dysregulated state, mm-hmm. right? So the dysregulation is coming from the nervous system. And he says that until that you can't do top-down processing of an emotional situation Mm-hmm. or of a traumatic event while the nervous system is dysregulated so you have to use the bottom-up approach first which is okay let's settle the nervous system down right and he actually uses sensory inputs right tapping yes smells sounds those sorts of things mm-hmm. to start to settle the nervous system so remember that the autistic operating system is a bottom-up approach So we already have all of that sensory data. So now we take that and we can help the person understand, okay, what's going on in the nervous system? Do you feel regulated or do you feel dysregulated? And so I often use the image of the ladder Mm. and I'll say to the client, you know, show me on where on the ladder do you feel that you are right now? I love that. Right. So and a language to use to describe how they're feeling. That's Mm -hmm. the first part. From there, we look at what the cause of that dysregulation might be. Mm. So in someone with PTSD, we know that the most likely cause is their trauma. Mm -hmm. In someone with autism, that dysregulation could be coming from the light in the room being too bright. Right. or a sound or a texture on the skin or any right. other input that's coming in through a sensory level. Maybe someone's talking too much mm-hmm. and they can't focus and it throws the nervous system into dysregulation. Right. So polyvagal theory and using the ladder allows us a way of, you know, first noticing and identifying the state of the nervous system. And then we can use tools to start to soothe the nervous system. Right. So it's really a lot of detective work that goes mm-hmm. into into the whole process. But 
but it's a it's a really beautiful way to start to sort of piece apart um, what is causing dysregulation and dysregulation in an autistic can come from many sources it can also come from emotions and it can come from parts right which is where ifs comes in but you really need to know enough about autism to be able to tease those two things apart so you're not looking for a part or an emotional cause of dysregulation that's actually being caused by the fact that someone's outside with a leaf blower right right so (sighs) sarah I feel like this actually needs to be a five hour podcast (laughs) because the depth that we could go into is mind blowing to me. Again, I I have never had anybody explain this so clearly and beautifully, and it is going to hit home for so many folks. So I have repeatedly, Sarah, apologized to my ex, um, you know, and when you don't know that you're in a neurodiverse relationship, both partners can cause each other so much unintentional hurt and pain and trauma. And I know I did that. um, And I've apologized. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't make it better. I, I cannot change the past, but what I, a, a very small example of what you're talking about that just was ringing in my head Um, was when my ex and I were separated. I remember going to his apartment and we were having a very deep conversation about whether or not we were going to move forward on a divorce. And I I can't remember the details, but I remember him looking at my shirt Mm -hmm. and telling me that there was a small pinhole Mm -hmm. at the bottom of my shirt. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there crying you know not wanting right, a divorce right, and all this right. stuff and that's what he focused mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. of course I started screaming I'm like you're not listening to me at the time we didn't know we were a neurodiverse couple it was early in our separation we were separated for two and a half years but I'm sharing this because there's so many couples that are taking these things personally Right. They are being so devastated by things that were not meant to devastate or hurt us. Mm-hmm. And we just keep missing each other because of our very different operating systems. Right. right. And I just want both partners to give themselves a little grace and mm-hmm. really hear what you're saying so that, and I'm, I'm, I'm betting a lot of people are going to reach out to you and, you know, maybe want help. I know you do work um, internationally, which is wonderful. And I think that if you could make this a course that could be taught in every social work program and every psychology program and every program with helping professionals from Mm -hmm. doctors to nurses to everybody else, um, it would make such a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that is my goal. I don't know if I'll ever get there, but that's that's (laughs) certainly my goal. Wonderful. Wonderful. And if there's anything I can do to help you, let me know. Oh, I will for sure. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, so we've talked a little bit about IFS and mm-hmm. polyvagal theory and the latter, which I think is going to be a great visual for folks. You mentioned a little bit about the sensory experience of an autistic person. Mm-hmm. And we haven't really talked about this on the podcast. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about 
what the term sensory profile means, Mm -hmm. because I think the more couples and autistic individuals truly understand their sensory profile, again, the fewer unintentional, you know, disconnects and misunderstandings there will be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the sensory profile I use with clients just to, again, it's in information gathering, right? Because the more things you know about yourselves, the more clarity you have, and then you can step from there into a place of understanding. Mm-hmm. So I use it to determine um, which of the senses are over responsive and which might be under responsive. Okay. Right. So, you know, this, this perceptual um, disorder that, that, that is autism, right, creates either very hypersensitive or hyposensitive mm-hmm. sensory responses to things, right? So things you see, hear, um, smell, taste, feel, but it's also like interoception, exteroception, how much you're picking up on the emotions of other people in the room. Um, synesthesia is one of them. Do you see colors and, and you know, all sorts of things that, that, that you can't really explain. Right. And you gather all of that information because there are things in the environment you can control mm-hmm. and things in the environment you can't control, but it's really good information to have. Mm-hmm. Right? So I know, for example, that when I'm really tired, I don't want to wear jeans. I can't mm-hmm. wear jeans. If I have a busy day at work, I wear a gray sweatshirt that I bought in Target a couple of years ago for about $15 and I wear <laughs> it all the time. Okay. And it's my it's my sensory sweatshirt, you wow. know, because it's gray, it doesn't stimulate me visually, it feels really good, it's super comfortable. And I'm known for for seeing clients and wearing this gray sweatshirt and it really is and my husband knows that when I put this sweatshirt on it means okay, she needs some space. Mm. Right? She's at maximum here. And the other thing that the other reason that the sensory profile can be really helpful is that we know that autistic traits and characteristics are directly impacted by context Mm. and that they are much more likely to be present or become overwhelming when demand exceeds capacity. And that's a really important phrase. Yes, it is. So if you're an autistic person and you know what your sensory profile is and you have some level of control over it, your demand is well below capacity and you can function at a much better better level. Right. You're going to be happier. You're going to be more content, right? If you're in a situation that, one, you don't know what your sensory profile is or, Mm -hmm. two, you have very little control over your circumstances – you're very much going to reach capacity, uh, you know, pretty quickly. You're going to hit capacity, right? Right, right? And then demand keeps coming in and you're at capacity. And then all of a sudden, all of your autistic traits and characteristics become really evident and overwhelming. Right. And then you're thrown into that dysregulation. Right. And that's where we may see the meltdowns or the shutdowns or being yes. in this continued state could lead to autistic burnout. And- yeah. And I actually have um, I have a really interesting story about this that was my own personal journey. And it's to do with sex. Mm, I'd love to hear it. My um, so I have what I consider a very healthy sexual appetite. I love sex. I really love my husband. Um 
I like to be touched. You know, I like sort of more firm touch. I don't like super light touch. And there would be situations where he might say to me, do you want to have sex? Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't know. Mm. I wouldn't be able to answer that. And he would take my pausing as evidence that I didn't want to have sex. When in fact, because of my low, my low level data gathering and processing in right. my head, I'm running through the list of everything, all of the steps that need to happen in order for me to have sex. Wow. So that's happening first, right? Okay. okay. So that's step one. Then I might decide, okay, yes, I do want to. And, you know, we're in, we're in bed and that might be happening or we're having sex and everything seems fine. And this happened like constantly throughout my life, but became much more obvious since I married my lovely husband because I love him so much. And so right, it really right, didn't right. add up what was happening. Right. My body would go into shutdown hmm. and it would be almost like a freeze kind of state where I would stop having any kind of response to him, to his touch, to movement. And my mind would not quite disassociate, but I would certainly disconnect from the experience. And I couldn't understand for the life of me what was happening. Wow. And this so was I, before you knew you were autistic or after? After. Okay. And I mean, it had happened to me my whole life, right? But right, it was, it was, but once I got my diagnosis... I was sort of paying much more attention to the things I was I was sort of going through and feeling, but I still couldn't piece together why I was having this response sure. to this man that I really loved sure. and felt very connected to. So I, I went to therapy and um, I, I dug and I dug and I dug and I thought, okay, there has to be some kind of sexual trauma in there that I haven't uncovered. There's got to be a reason for this. It doesn't make sense why my nervous system is responding this way, right? Mm -hmm. And I got nowhere. No, I found nothing. There was nothing to process, nothing to do. You know, anything that I did need to deal with emotionally, I had dealt with. There was no reason that I was having this response to my husband. Okay. Until. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the light bulb moment. Go ahead. I did my own sensory profile. Wow. Okay. And what I discovered was that the process of having sex for an mm -hmm. autistic person is really intense. Wow. There's a lot of sensory input. Yeah. Right? You're in yeah. you're in a very close physical location with another human being. Right. You feel their skin on your skin. Right. Their smell. Mhm. Mm their touch. Mhm. Mm sound. Everything. <laughs> breath on the face. I mean, you name it, it's like the most intense sensory experience for any person right for somebody with autism that is magnified a thousand percent right and that's just the physicality of the the act of sex mm -hmm. then you still have everything else that's going on in the room around you right is it too bright right for me it could, might be my dog has an issue with her paw sometimes and she licks it <laughs> and if she licks her paw that's it i'm taken offline <laughs> you're hearing that because that's all I can much. hear right because right, right. right so the extra sensory input of the sound of her licking her paw combined with all the sensory input of of this you know lovely intimate act with my husband takes yeah. me to capacity and, and what do boom, you do do you shut down my you body shut down? shuts down my nervous system just wow. goes okay we're going offline we're not going to respond now
just go for it. And so what, again, this is not anything I've talked about. And I can tell you, there are a lot of folks that are going to hear this and it is going to make sense. It is going to make them cry and be emotional Mm -hmm. and wonder, you know, for years and years and years, was this what has been happening? And I thought that, you know, my partner wasn't attracted to me. And Mm -hmm. I thought all these things. And I've heard it from couples, again, who attend the support group that I facilitate, where sex was fantastic in the beginning of the relationship. And, you know, they were so excited about how they connected. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, they moved in with each other, they got married, they had a kid, and literally the sex, their sex life went to zero. And there's no analysis or, or sensory profile development or any Mm -hmm. conversation, except very negative Mm -hmm. or accusatory. And so this is going to be a major aha moment for folks. So what can you do and what can your husband do Mm -hmm. to help you move forward when this happens? Or is there anything? Yes. I mean, it's, it's like everything else that we approach, right? You have to be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the intimacy part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you can have a conversation about it, Mm-hmm. even if it might feel awkward and challenging and that's where you know you can do some other work IFS works really well with parts that you know have been socialized to to feel shameful about sex or their response to sex or you know all those emotional reactions to things once you can get those parts to step aside so you can have a very self-led conversation about what's actually happening mm-hmm. right yeah you can set it up a little bit differently so my husband knows that before we have sex, he should go and wash his hands because if his hands feel sticky, mm-hmm. I don't want to, t- to be touched. Mm. If his hands aren't sticky, it feels, it, it registers completely differently in my nervous system. Wow. And you Something know Something as simple as that. Yeah, and you know this now because you've done your sensory profile. Yes, exactly. And so I guess one of the questions that I want to ask is you've done your sensory profile. You understand the issues that um, create the most challenges for you. But I know I've talked to so many autistic folks and I'd love your input on this. If you are overwhelmed, let's say you had a really bad day at work where Mm -hmm. the kids are just, you know, over the top emotional, they're struggling and you're having sex and mm-hmm. something that is not maybe on your sensory profile mm-hmm. is impacting you yep. um, because of all the other things that are happening in your life. That's also a, an opportunity to have a conversation, right? Absolutely. I mean, okay. Right. So that's that demand, you know, demand exceeding capacity. Right. Right. Okay. So the demand doesn't always have to be coming in through the senses. The demand can come in just from being a, a human in the world. Right. Right. So. Right. And so can you maybe give the listeners an example of what they could say to their partner, the autistic partner could say to their non-autistic partner and what the non-autistic partner can say or do in this situation. Cause I'm imagining this is happening. You're, you're, you're getting intimate. You're both looking forward to being with each other and mm-hmm. then something happens and there's either the disassociation or I can't right. move forward or whatever. So any thoughts on what 
each partner might be able to do or say that's, you know, kind and compassionate and has some grace. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just acknowledging the experience, right? So Mm -hmm. noticing state. So it may be that, you know, maybe the autistic partner says, you know, I can feel that I'm heading towards dysregulation. Can Mm -hmm. I take a moment, right? Or perhaps the non-autistic partner might say, okay, I can feel that you're not really sort of engaged in this. Are you heading into dysregulation? Would you like to take a moment? I love that. Would you need to do? And it could be something as simple as, you know, if the lights are on in the room, shut the lights off, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a really simple thing. But intimacy comes from being vulnerable with one another. Absolutely. Right. That's what intimacy is. And so can you both hold space for being vulnerable and also for the person who is witnessing the vulnerability? Yeah. So you want that container to include both people. And then you also want the, you know, the neurotypical or the non-autistic person to be able to say, to speak for how it might feel to them. Sure. Can you can you reassure me that it's not me? Mm-hmm. I just yeah. need a little I'm feeling a little insecure right now that I'm doing something. Right. In which case, then the, the autistic person might be able to say, no, no, it's not you. I want to reassure you of that. However, you know, this, this and this is happening on a sensory level. And, and I'm you know, I just need to take some of those factors off the table. So I then have more capacity available to me. I love that. I just, I, I absolutely love that. And Sarah, I, again, this is going to be so helpful to so many couples out there. I remember before my ex and I separated, I remember that um, I once told him that I didn't want to have sex with him anymore. And again, like you and your husband, we had a fantastic sex life throughout our you know marriage and even our separation. And I said, I feel like you are using my body and the second we leave the bedroom, you become a completely different person, like mm-hmm. a Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. And what I realized now was happening. He had gone back to work. He hadn't worked for almost, I don't know, seven and a half, eight years. He had gone back to work and really, you know, had a lot on his plate because mm-hmm. it, it had been so long that he had created, a, you know, a different routine, a different life for him. And I think that that, that overwhelmed feeling affected him in ways he either didn't want to share with me or couldn't share with me and it affected who he was Mm -hmm. when we were most intimate I mean he was there physically but I didn't feel like he was there emotionally and he didn't connect with me when we left the bedroom and when I said to him I don't want to have sex with you anymore because I feel like you're using my body his response was okay that was not what I wanted to hear. Right? So, <laughs> right, right. You were looking for a bit more than that. <laughs> exactly. So again, all this is going to be helpful to so many folks to know that it's not personal. It's about, you know, gaining more understanding about your sensory profile and how you can each communicate with each other, you know, with some vulnerability when you feel, you know, safe and you might need a third party to help with right, that. Exactly. Um, so that you can both understand each other's needs and wants and preferences. Mm -hmm. And when you're moving in a direction, that's not going to be beneficial for one or both of you. I love this again, just, it's, it's just absolute gold, absolute gold. So I want to talk about 
Um, well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about related to sex and intimacy? The only and- thing I, w- I want to add is is for any clinicians working with couples who mm-hmm. may be having sex and intimacy issues to just keep all of this in mind also. Oh, absolutely. Right? Because if the clinician isn't autism informed yeah. and doesn't know these things, they're going to miss it and they can also do a lot of harm. Absolutely. Oh, so absolutely. Just be mindful of that as you're working. Okay, fantastic. And I guess the last thing that I want to talk about is how we tease apart what's a neurological issue mm-hmm. and what might be an emotional or a trauma issue. I know you talked about a little bit about that related to IFS and the polyvagal theory, but is mm-hmm. there's something else that folks can learn about because I hear this all the time. You know, my my husband, my wife, my partner came from a very challenging upbringing. I know there's a lot of trauma in their family of mm-hmm. origin and what have you. And is that really what's going on or is it mm-hmm. related to autism or neurodiver- neurodiversity? Mm-hmm. And so if you can share a little bit about that, that would be really helpful. I mean, I think just, just staying as curious and open-minded as possible. Um, don't make assumptions about another person's experience, right? I mean, you would look at my childhood and my upbringing and assumed that I had experienced massive trauma, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. I had some very difficult events happen and I was raised in very difficult circumstances. However, it's the processing of the event that either, you know, that sort of determines whether there's going to be trauma or not, right? It's how you process the event. And so the way my processing works, those events didn't leave a trauma scar on me. So don't make assumptions about another person's experience, right? Stay curious and open. So in terms of um, what I do with clients when I use IFS with them, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm completely autism informed. So I always approach things through that lens first. If you're not somebody who's autism informed, especially if you're an IFS therapist or practitioner, and you're working with a client that you either think is on the spectrum or might be on the spectrum, and you're working with what you think is a part, and you're getting mm-hmm. nowhere, mm-hmm. right? That's a really good, um, a, a good sort of sticker flag in that, right? And think, okay, there's obviously another cause here. Right. So is it a neurological approach? So, you know, is this client being dysregulated and having emotional dysregulation when they come into session because they're avoidant and they don't want to deal with their trauma or their history or their background? Or is there something in my room that's throwing off their nervous system? Right. And what can I do about that? Right. It could be something as simple as the air freshener you're using, the plug-in, you know. Absolutely. That the appointment time they have is the time that the air blower or the lawn maintenance guys are outside. You know, yeah, there's so many things. Or the lighting, you know, the fluorescent lighting. Change their appointment time because you have to, because that happens sometimes, right? And that has thrown off the whole system, right? So it's, it's just remaining curious about, and just ask them too. You know, right. and sometimes clients don't always know and people don't always know right. what's going on. But it's it's maintaining that sort of that expansive view. And the more awareness you have of autism as a perceptual disorder. Right. If you can use that lens and, and forget that, you know, what we've been taught around autism. Right. Which is, oh, it's it's a social disorder. It affects 
social communication, right? Of course it affects social communication because we're sitting in a room and we can't have a conversation because we're being bombarded by a thousand different things coming at us, right? Right. That's why it impacts social communication. Right. Right. So the more informed you can be, the more you can look in different places for the cause of things. Right? Right. Not everything is emotional. And, you know, in my experience of working with autistic clients, they have, um, and this is something that I've researched a, a lot during my consciousness studies program, is, is this idea of what consciousness is, right? And so consciousness is defined as the moment of noticing. Mm, I love that. That's what consciousness is. So we're having all of these experiences. They're all around us all the time, but we're not necessarily noticing them. Mm-hmm. Chances are an autistic person is noticing almost everything <laughs> yeah. all of the time. Right. 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 What that means is that we're very grounded and very centered and very, very much in the present moment because of that sensory information that's coming in. It keeps us anchored in the now as opposed to, you know, in the 10 years ago or the 10 years in the future, mm-hmm. which where people, you know, often live. And so, it doesn't if you if you can use your your lens of being autism informed you can help an autistic person get back to that place very quickly of feeling that that really deep sense of grounding and i see it in my autistic clients and in, in ifs we use the language of you know self led right so you have self energy mm-hmm. and then you have parts energy and my experience is that my autistic clients, once you know, we can distinguish between parts and self, they, they have the most amazing access to self-energy. And it's, it's very grounding and reassuring. And it's reassuring to people around them. And, and oftentimes neurotypicals are really drawn to autistic partners because yeah. we are very grounding and reassuring. Yes. You know? Despite the fact that we might be taken offline because there's a light blinking in the room, you know, (laughs) aside from that, we're very grounding and reassuring. Yes. And, and I am so attracted to autistic men um, for so many reasons. And pretty much everybody that I've dated since my separation um, is autistic. And there's so many strengths and so many amazing, attractive qualities. And the more I learn, Mm -hmm. the better partner I can be. Because, I mean, I have so many ADHD traits that I know in my marriage, I overwhelmed my Mm ex-husband again and again and again and again and didn't mean to. But, you know, I didn't understand really how much time he needed to process things. I didn't understand why he would look at me like a deer in headlights because mm-hmm. I was just the sensory overwhelm was <laughs> too much. But again, when we're in the middle of it, Sarah, it's so hard. But hearing from so many folks through the podcast of how to do things differently with more grace and compassion, to be curious, to look for understanding rather than to take things personal or personally, Mm -hmm. or to judge our partners rather than to listen and give each other space and time to process so many things we can do differently. And I know there are lots of folks that have been married, you know, as long as I was, I was married 30 years or longer and they're struggling and they're trying to figure out how to be, their best selves and Mm -hmm. the best partner possible. And I know that can be difficult. And 
So I know there's going to be lots of folks that are going to want to reach out to you. Before you give your contact information, there was something that you said to me. It was a quote um, that I just loved. And I'd love if you would speak to it, if you don't mind. And you said being autistic is like being a bird flying in a garden and then running into a window. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm going to use that quote in the show notes for the the uh, podcast episode, but I, I'd love if you could share a little bit about kind of where that came from and what that means to mm-hmm, you. Mm-hmm. So I use that in um, an essay I wrote for um, Parts and South, which is the online journal for the IFS Institute. They asked me to write a piece after I presented at the conference last year. And I was trying to describe what it's like to be an autistic person in a neurotypical world and how we're, you know, constantly confronted with things um, that that we really don't understand, especially if if this is pre-diagnosis. Right. Right. So pre-diagnosis, not much of anything makes sense other than you keep knowing that you're different. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the image came to me. I was actually, when I was writing, I was sitting in my office looking out at the, I love birds and I have bird feeders everywhere. And I was watching them and, and a bird flew into the window as mm. I was writing. Wow. And what a message, thinking, right? Right. This poor <laughs> bird, it's having this beautiful time. I have a lovely garden. There's a nice full bird feeder. Everything's great. It's a gorgeous day. And then, you know, bam, mm. there's the window. It can't even see it. Wow. Right. So how on earth can you prepare or a hazard that you don't even see. That is so powerful, Sarah. It's so powerful. And I think it describes, again, the disconnects, the challenges, Mm -hmm. the, the anger and resentment, the judgment, the misunderstandings, the pain, the hurt, the trauma. Oh, my God. Just an, a beautiful, you know, story and analogy. How can you prepare? Right. Right. There's no way. You can't. Right. And most, you know, any late diagnosed autistic person has had a lifetime of flying into various windows. You know, perhaps it's something they said to their partner. Right. Perhaps it's a, you know, like me, a response they had during sex or, or a different, you know, a social engagement that you said you wanted to go to. And then you realized you couldn't and you cancel and you get this big emotional response from you know, the person on whom you've just cancelled and, and you know, the, you just don't really understand what, what is happening. You miss these things. Right. So the more knowledge you have, the more likely you are to be able to see the windows mm-hmm. and avoid them. Right. And do you feel that starts with self-awareness? Definitely. Real- yeah. And yeah. understanding, under truly understanding your wants, your needs, your preferences. Mm-hmm. And just yeah. understanding how this condition impacts you. Yeah. Because yeah. it impacts everything. Yeah. Every interaction you have, every waking moment of the day is impacted by autism. And you know what? Just you saying that, I feel overwhelmed for all autistic people because I can't even imagine functioning like that every day not knowing why I'm feeling these things and then you know at whatever age you know whether it's 20 or 70 Mm -hmm. finding out 
for self-identifying as autistic and then everything begins to mm-hmm. make sense. Right. right, right. And then you start to notice, oh, there's a window over there. Right. Let's go this way instead or let's slow down and let's be careful. Right. Or let's just hang out at the bird feeder. Exactly. <laughs> Even better. Even better. <laughs> Enjoy ourselves. So, Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation. And I'd love to know, number one, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about um, that we missed? And then two, I'd love for you to give folks your contact information. So is there anything else that you wanted to share? Another nugget of gold? Um, not that I can think of. I feel like we covered a lot. And I'm we hoping that, that I didn't cover too much. I can get very excited about my, my subject matter here. So, No, it um, was fantastic. And I can tell you so much of what we talked about has never been discussed on the podcast and is going to reach so many people. Um, I have folks from over 60 countries that listen, so it's going to be amazingly impactful. So for those folks that want to reach you, I know you're based in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. right? But you do coaching and you're an IFS practitioner who can work with people all over the world, correct? Yes, correct. And I do, you know, I do, I do see clients. I have a, a pretty full client base, but I also, I really love the education piece of it, the writing and the researching and awesome. shifting the narrative. And Yes. Yeah. And we're, we're in desperate need of shifting the narrative mm-hmm. every single day. So thank you for being a leader in that area and if folks want to reach out to you what is the best place for them to contact you so you can um, head to my website it's the curiousheart.com and you can email me sarah with an h on the end at the curiousheart.com if you're really eager to see me on social media i have to say i'm really boring and almost (laughs) everything is a it has at least includes my dog if it's not only about my dog okay so you know i do post some other stuff up there too but i'm I'm not like one of these sort of very content heavy people on social media but i'm on instagram with my name and and that's it but i'm i'm pretty unexciting Okay. But there's lots of folks that follow other people who post pictures about their dogs or cats (laughs) or other animals. I see it often. Well, then definitely reach out to me because I would love to see pictures of your dogs. Okay. (laughs) Wonderful. Sarah, thank you for sharing your personal journey or a little bit about it, sharing what you went through with your daughter, sharing Mm -hmm. so much important information about IFS and polyvagal theory and just kind of turning on so many light bulbs for I know so many listeners in areas where they were struggling and um, you know if in the future you're doing anything that I can share with my listeners or through my newsletter or on social media I would love love to publicize you know Mm, your classes or workshops yeah Absolutely. Yeah, I do have um, my talk from the IFS conference last year is actually up on the um, Institute's YouTube channel. Oh, okay. You're welcome to go and see that. That's a free resource. Um, I'll be presenting again this year in person. Um, So hopefully they'll do the same thing. They'll offer offer that as a free resource to people. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was lovely talking to you and I feel the same way. It was fantastic talking to you and you take care.